Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. It's five o'clock on Friday afternoon. My name's Jacob, here with you on Community Radio Station 3CR, and this is a Friday Rave. Well, here on a Friday Rave this week, I've got to say thanks to James from In Your Face for another excellent show, as every week. Um... We're going to talk today because we're halfway between Nakba Day, which was Tuesday, and big props for those who joined us out the front of the State Library in the driving wind and the rain to commemorate the um, catastrophe that is the ongoing continuous displacement of Palestinian people. And, of course, the Nakba Rally, which is happening tomorrow at the State Library at um, midday, 12, 12 o'clock. So before we say... <clears throat> excuse me, anything else on the subject. If you're listening to 3CR Live in Melbourne on 855 kilohertz, make a mental note to be there. That's the State Library of Victoria at midday tomorrow, Saturday the 19th of May. Now, this is a holy day of obligation, folks, and no excuses or confessions will be heard or, for, for, or admitted for non-attendance, and there'll be no remission of this sin at all. Just be there. Now, if you're not listening in Melbourne, either through 3CR Digital or via all the W's at 3cr.org.au, check out what's happening in your part of the world for El Nakba. But let's get one thing straight. As I just said, El, El Nakba is not a commemoration of something that's happened 70 years ago. A lot of people, a lot of commentators have been talking about it like that. Um, it's more a recognition of something that's happening right now and has been continuously happening for 70, that's three score and 10 years, 25,500-odd consecutive days where a people have been dispossessed, abused, tortured, starved, raped, murdered and generally treated like shit by a corrupt and racist occupying military government with the full complicity of the Australian government, speaking, I've got to say, and acting in your name. And it's well and truly time it stopped. So wherever you're hearing this today, listen up, because while you've probably heard a bit about this this week, about NACMA, today I'm going to talk a little bit about the lead-up to it here on Community Radio 3CR. Global Intifada, bringing you current affairs through revolutionary and protest music from around the world. Every Thursday afternoon from 5 till 6 on 3CR. Because music is our bomb. Yeah, as I say, I'm going to talk a little bit about the lead-up to Al-Nakba because 
<clears throat> as I say, it wasn't just one event, and it's not just that it's been happening for 70 years. It happened for a time. Um, there was a big lead-up to it that was you can't really separate. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, I've got a bit of a frog in my throat today. But, you know, sometimes those of us who are involved in working on the campaign now, various issues, um, we tend to take basic information for granted. Now, this happens whether we're talking about, you know, climate change or Palestine or gender equity, civil liberty campaigns, whatever other issue that we're involved in. We just assume that most of the people on the left, whatever that means, um, well, maybe not as across the issue as we are, at least across what we may consider the basics. But the question is what considers the basics? Over the last couple of weeks, in the lead-up to and around the Al-Nakba, I've become aware that many people, good people who support the Palestinian people, don't necessarily have much knowledge of the history um, behind what's, what happened on Al-Nakba. That's not to say they should have or they need to have. You don't need to know any history to look at the actions of the Israeli government over the last six weeks, for example, and know that it's wrong. You don't need to see Malcolm Turnbull or Bill Shorten's smarmy faces victim-blaming Palestinians to know that the Australian government's stance needs to change, and it needs to change now. And I want to say straight up, I don't claim to be anything approaching an expert on the matter. The real experts, folks who I speak to and seek advice from, are no doubt get as, you know, no doubt as frustrated at my lack of knowledge as I sometimes am with other people's. Um, so I'm not here because I'm an expert. What I do have is half an hour of radio time every week to rave about whatever I want to rave about to anyone who wants to listen. And this week, what I want to rave about is Al-Nakba. Telling a bit of a story because, well, I'm a storyteller, not an academic, for Christ's sake. If people want to learn more or do more, I recommend listening to Palestine Remembered here on Community Radio on Saturdays at 9.30, right after Asia-Pacific Currents. And Asia-Pacific Currents, of course, by Australia-Asia Worker Links that I've been co-hosting for a couple of weeks. Um, also, Al Jazeera has a great little four-part series on Al-Nakba, going back all the way to Napoleon's attempts to create a Zionist state in 1799. Um, it's worthwhile viewing. Just go to aljazeera.com and do a search on Al-Nakba. To keep up to date locally, on the other hand, check out the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network, either on Facebook or at their website at apan.org.au. That's the Australia Palestine Advocacy Network. Okay, but for today, it's um, hard to know just where to start, how far to go back when talking about Palestine. If you had a few hours, you could go back all the way to Napoleon, like Al Jazeera did, I guess. If I had a whole night and a big enough bag of smoke, I could go back to Joshua and the walls of Jericho, but I haven't. I got about 20 minutes, so I'm going to start thinking about what it must have been like to be a young bloke in Palestine in 1948. Five, four, three, two, one. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. And this young bloke, you know, back in 1948, you know, he could have been a hypothetical, a, a Every man, a Palestinian every man, he could have been living in any one of the 500 villages in the British Mandate of Palestine. But for the sake of this narrative, let's just say he lived in a, 
little stone quarry village of about 600 people just west of Jerusalem. And, you know, if he was 18 in 1948, that'd make him born in 1930, just to keep it around numbers. You know, maybe he's managed to survive. Maybe he's 88 now. We're not talking ancient history here. This bloke would be a lot younger than my adopted father if he was still alive. His family, however, had been there for ancient history, with stories about the dome building in the middle of his village going back to the Malmuk Sultanate of 1400s and some people claiming it goes back even even further. As this bloke was growing up under the British mandate, so I won't go into what the British mandate was, as I said, you've got to start somewhere, there were many European Jews moving into Jerusalem just down the road from him, as well as the rest of Palestine. And there were, admittedly, some tensions. I mean, you know, Australia is um, is getting all hot, un- hot under the collar. Could you imagine? Could you imagine if the population um, of immigrants doubled in just a number of, in what, three or four years, like it did in um, Palestine in the 30s? You know, there were tensions. But his village, um, Deir Yassin, got along reasonably well with the newcomers. You know, after a while... Um, when he was a boy in the, in the mid-30s, Palestinians were getting fed up with the British mandate and there were a movement starting for calling for Palestinian self-rule um, as they were told they were going to get during the First World War. In um, 1935, a few events happened. First of all, they, you know, there was a Jewish para, paramilitary um, force um, taking off, or no, it had been taken off to Haganah, and um, they found an arms shipment in Jaffa, destined for them. And, you know, things turned ugly. The, uh, Sheikh al-Assam was organising an anti-British movement and he was killed after a, after a raid. And anyway, it just got ugly and um, a general strike was called, which led to an Arab revolt in Palestine, which lasted three years until 1939. And by the end of it, 5,000 Palestinian men 100 Jews, 300 British were dead. 5,000 Palestinian men. We're talking here 1939, well and truly before the war. That's 10% of the adult male population. They were literally decimated, is the word you can use there. Our young bloke would have been eight years old when he heard the stories about coming in from other villages and towns around the place, you know, coming out of Nablus, where there was a story of 5,000 men held in a cage for days, interrogated, stamped like animals. Stories out of the north, places like Albasa, <coughs> which was turned, you know, burned to the ground by the Royal Ulster Rifles. Now, there's a mob for you, isn't it? The Royal Ulster Rifles. Um, in retribution of one of their cars hitting a landmine. Now, it wasn't even one of the villages that laid this landmine. Yet still, the Royal Ulster Rifles shot the fleeing villagers, put the rest on a bus, ones they didn't shoot, then forced the bus to drive over a landmine. The survivors of this then had to dig a pit to throw the dead in. These are the stories our young bloke would have heard growing up as a boy in Palestine in the 1930s. So let's dispel, to start with, the common misconception that Palestine was given over as a homeland to the Jewish people because of the horrors they faced at the hand of the Nazis during World War II. And while we're not downplaying, downplaying at all the horrors that the Jewish and the Roma people were subjected to, 
The Zionist program for a Jewish homeland in Palestine was already well underway before World War II had even begun, let alone <clears throat> the extent of the Holocaust exposed. The British High Commissioner of Palestine, Lord Peel, proposed in 1937 the partition of Palestine into a small Jewish state containing most of the arable land and an Arab state linked to Transjordan. And this included a plan for the forced relocation of 225,000 Palestinians. That was going, 1937, and the Peel Peel Commission. All this was put on hold when the war, you know, when war was breaking out, because Britain felt assured of Jewish support um, in Palestine, but they also needed to appease the Arabs. Um, As Neville Chamberlain put it, um, let's offend the Jews rather than the Arabs. Now, okay, he might have had a bit of anti-Semitism about him himself, but it was a political decision. So the British put forward a position in the White Paper of 1939 that said it was not policy for for Palestine to be partitioned into Jewish and Arab states. Much of the Jewish population, of course, felt betrayed by that and um, were unhappy. And um, this led to Jewish paramilitaries such as the Irgun and its offshoot, the Stern Gang, splitting off from the quasi-official Haganah and begin a program of anti-British attacks, basically terrorism. So in 1939, back to our young bloke in Deir Yassin, he was probably too young to have much of an understanding of what was going on, and with the outbreak of World War II, in a weird sort of way that the world sometimes works, the war years were amongst the most stable and prosperous times for his village, quarrying near yellow limestone and doing business in, with their neighbours in the Jewish village of um, Givat Shaul, in West Jerusalem. So the war years were peaceful enough. Ergun members were off working with the British Army against the Nazis and fighting in some British units and also running a bit of an intelligence service in Eastern Europe and trying to form a Jewish army, I've got to say, in the United States to fight alongside the Allies, while the Stern Gang were making overtures to the fascist powers too, in their own words, quote, actively take part in the war on Germany's side, unquote in return for German support for, quote, the establishment of the historic Jewish state on national and totalitarian basis, bound by a treaty with the German Reich. You know, so basically, both terrorist organisations are too busy working foreign deals on both sides to cause any problems in Palestine. So our young bloke grew up, went to a newly built school, you know, probably had a bit of a job in the family business until the war ended. Um... As I say, you know, they, the terrorist, the Jewish terrorist organisations, I don't know, look, it's hard to believe. I've got no, nothing to, what's the word, prove this, but it's, it's hard for me not to think that an actual deal was made. You talk to the Allies, we'll talk to the, we'll talk to the Axis powers, and whichever one wins, um, we've got friends on our side, you know, um, it's absolutely amazing to think of the, the way they were, they were doing this. Yeah, but anyway, he grew up, our young bloke, um, working. At the end of the war, there was international pressure on Britain, particularly from the US, to change its policies and admit 100,000 Jewish Holocaust survivors to Palestine. And um, this led to the post-war reconciliation between the Haganah, Irgun and the Stern Gang into the Jewish resistance movement. Now, Now, dig this, one of them was courting the Allies, one was causing the, the Nazis, 
But as soon as the war was over, they got together again. There was absolutely no politics in this mob. Now, these mobs, mainly the Stern Gang, I've got to say, began blowing shit up all over the place. Police stations, railways, car park, a hotel in Palestine, a club in London, assassinations, the first organised terrorist groups in the Middle East, really. And their only framework was ending the British mandate by force and terror and creating a Jewish homeland in Palestine. And they set the benchmark for success. Menachem Begin, a commander of Irgun, went on to become the sixth Prime Minister of Israel. Yitzhak Shamir, a leader of the Stern Gang, succeeded him as the seventh Prime Minister of Israel. So, for all these people who say terrorism doesn't work, all you need to do is look at your, um, your Middle Eastern history in Palestine. Not that I'm advocating it at all. While the terrorist violence in Palestine was going on, the international community was... Um, running round like blue-ass flies, like they always do, um, making deals left, right and centre about what to do about Palestine. The British ended their mandate, referred matters to the newly created United Nations, who formed an ad hoc subcommittee to review all the options. I haven't got the time or energy to go through all the manoeuvrings and all the options here. At any rate, our young bloke and his family in Deir Sin they wouldn't have had their heads around all the details and manoeuvrings anyway of what the great powers in the world were deliberating about their lives. Just like they never have. Just like ordinary people never have. In November in forty-seven, the UN passed Resolution 181, which called for the creation of an independent Arab and Jewish states um, with a special international zone around Jerusalem. Now, Arab leaders and governments rejected it, of course, seeing it as a land theft and violating the UN's own charter of national self-determination. War immediately broke out. The Haganah were evicting villages on the coast. Uh, many Palestinian families were trying to get out to neighbouring countries. Villages were being raised. Under the leadership of David Ben-Gurion, who was head of the World Zionist Organisation, a plant, a plant, sorry, um, reminiscent of the Nazi transport trains, I've got to say, was implemented to transfer Arabs out of Palestine. Still, the people of Deir Yassin wanted peace. They signed an agreement with their Jewish neighbours in the village of Givat Shaul not to get involved in the hostilities. And, and both sides stuck by this agreement um, steadfastly. The peace agreement between Deir Yassin and Givat Shaul ran contrary, of course, to the plan of a Jewish homeland. And on the 9th of April, 1948, our young bloke, now 18, found his village being attacked by members of Irgun and the Stern Gang. Houses full of people were blown up. Men, women and children were shot in the street. Survivors were put on a bus and paraded through the streets of Jerusalem in a victory parade, where they were subject to further violence and abuse. So our young bloke's world changed. There at the, you know, the, the start of what's now come known as Al-Nakba in 1948, 70 years ago, um, this year. Now our young bloke was fit and young and managed to get away. He watched and he heard stories of other villagers that suffered a similar fate to his. A month later, on the 14th of May, um... David Ben-Gurion declared the establishment of the State of Israel with himself as its first Prime Minister. But the terror continued. 
in El Zaytun, 70 villagers were killed. The town was completely razed to the ground. In Lida, about 500 were shot on site. 200 killed in Al Dawima. 70 men shot and burned in an open pit. Many women raped in Safsaf. In Abu Shusha, 70 villagers. A mass grave was only discovered in 1995 with 60 people in it. Now, only discovered in 1995. How many more mass graves are yet to be discovered under the tarmac, under the buildings? We just don't know. By November that year, thousands of Palestinians had been murdered and three quarters of a million were forced to flee their homes, became the largest population of refugees in the world. And the state of Israel had taken up 78% of historical Palestine. Since that time, expulsions have continued. The Sinai campaign of 1956 um, led to an Israeli push into the Sinai Peninsula to um, open its waters off Egypt with the loss of 400 Egyptian lives in the Sinai. The Six-Day War of 1967 took the rest of the Sinai and Gaza from Egypt, the West Bank from Jordan, the Golan Heights from Syria and occupied the international town of Jerusalem. The international community, the UN again, got involved, passing Resolution 242, calling for Israel to withdraw from all territories taken in 1967. They took no notice. And the world took no notice that they took no notice. In the 50 years since 1967 and 51 years in Resolution 242, Israel has continued to take land off the Palestinian people. They continue to destroy homes, to murder, to rape, to incarcerate, to humiliate, to use mortar, cannon, drones, machine guns, live bullets, white phosphorus, and the rest of the world. Well, the UN has a heap of resolutions and none of them have been complied with. So that's the history of what happened in the lead-up to al-Nakba. But as I say, it's been ongoing and listeners will be aware that the last six weeks, as I spoke about um Last week on Asia-Pacific Currents on a Saturday morning, um, there have been up to now um, 60 deaths and, um, sorry, um, over a 1,000 people um, wounded by the Israeli military as part of six weeks of protests on the Gaza um, border between Israel and the Gaza Strip. Now... Generally, what I do is I talk about Australian involvement, and I've got to talk about Australian involvement. You know, for a start, our own government, Bill Shorten, who comes out, not Bill Shorten, but I'm ahead of myself there. He would love to hear that. Probably the first thing I've said he he would have liked hearing. But uh, Malcolm Turnbull (coughs) come out and blamed Hamas for the slaughter. You have, you know, Bill Shorten being, being no different. You have, um, look, let's look at the Australian Jewish News. Okay, the Australian Jewish News runs a story um, the other day called IDF Averted a Great Disaster, where they're actually saying as the international community raged against Palestinian deaths, Israelis who live near Gaza were praising the IDF, saying it avoided a bloodbath. The IDF avoided a great disaster, said the mayor of Eshkol region. Um, because he was afraid of Gazans coming coming into his territory. They were on a protest march. 
They weren't an invading force. But when I talk about the way Australia is complicit, let's just talk for a minute at the media, because that's where we are at the moment. I'm in the Studio One of Community Radio 3CR. Could you imagine for a moment, just imagine for a moment, if somebody on 3CR praised the actions of a terrorist organisation killing people, killing people, wounding a 1,000 people who were unarmed and protesting, and we praised them or we said they averted a bloodbath, this radio station would be shut down immediately and so it friggin' should be. So should the Australian Jewish News. You know, this kind of Australian kowtowing to Israeli exceptionalism whereby we allow Israel to get, you know, last week Julie Bishop was the only, the only foreign leader speaking up on behalf of Israel. You know, even the United States couldn't bring themselves to support Israel, but Julie Bishop did. And um, we're letting, we let him get away with, with everything. But anyway... Anyway, that's, that's, you know, we, we have military deals, we have diplomatic support, we have, as I've said before, provide all raw data from Pine Gap to the Israeli Signals Directorate. All of it. That's your telephone calls metadata, my telephone calls metadata, this community radio station's metadata, this community radio station's broadcast on 3CR Digital. All of it provided directly as raw data to the Israeli Signals Directorate. And this, folks, it's one thing to talk about the evil Israeli government, the evil and corrupt Israeli government, call on Israel to stop doing this, call on Israel to stop doing that. Why should Israel listen to us? We can't even get our own government to listen to us. We can't even get our own opposition to listen to us. So what we need to do is change the way Australia deals with Israel. Years and years ago, years ago in the 80s, talking about the Philippines, and at the time of Marcos, I was talking to a priest who was on a visit here and, and we're having a smoke outside, just he and I. But before we went out for a smoke, someone said, um, what can we do to help the poor people in the Philippines? And he came out and we were having a smoke, as I say. And I was talking about the situation we have in Australia and some of the things that's happened in Australia and what our government's doing. And um, he went back and he said, let me revise my answer to that question, what you can do to help the poor people in the Philippines. What you can do is take control of your own government so you've got something to offer us. And that's stuck in my brain ever since that time. And that's what we can do to support Israel. Change the Australian government policy because we haven't got a hope in hell of changing the Israelis or the Americans. Anyway, you're here on Community Radio 3CR. Um, I'm going to have a shout-out again for the rally tomorrow. That's midday at the State Library of Victoria um, to support the Palestinian people, not just for the ongoing recognition of our Nakba, but um, to support them in their calls for um, justice in the way that, uh, after the way the Israeli government has um, been treating their protesters, using live fire. You know, we've just had a situation I talked about a few weeks ago on a Friday rave where the Victorian government is um, supplying 
coppers with all new kinds of non-lethal weaponry and riot control gear and all the rest of it. Why? The Israeli military don't use them. Why didn't they use any any other kinds of um, non-lethal weaponry? They claim they knew they could account and they planned every bullet. Every death was a planned death. But anyway, while we're on bullets, I did say last week that I was going to devote a couple of minutes a week to talking about Australian defence industry. I've only got a couple of minutes left. So all I'm going to talk about this week is make the announcement that Elbert Systems, the largest private Israeli arms company, makes everything from drones to bullets to bombs to the surveillance system on the apartheid wall, announced that they have just completed the rollout of 4,800 thermal imaging sites to the Australian Army from their facility in Port Melbourne. Yeah, folks, this isn't happening on the other side of the world. This is happening down in Port Melbourne. You know, they signed a deal at the Vic Barracks with their their managing director, Dan Webster, saying the success of the contract was another important aspect of the company's strategic partnership with the Army and the ADF. Um, Elbit Systems, Elbit Systems, are, um, are providing more and more weaponry to the Australian government. The Australian government is using weapons, not just overseas, but these are the kind of weapons that will be used all over Australia and will eventually be given to the police forces, used by the IDF to track down Palestinians. They're the same weapons, tested in the occupied territories. Meanwhile, Israeli firm CyberGym continues the process of relocating its global operations to its state-of-the-art cyber warfare facility in the Docklands. The Cyber Gym is basically a war games facility that trains militaries, police forces and corporations from around the world in cyber warfare techniques. Now, this move was made to the Docklands after lobbying from the Andrews government, but the Victorian Minister for Innovation, Philip Daladakis, would not reveal what financial assistance was offered to lure them away from Sydney and down south of the Murray. He said, I liken incentives to the loss leaders retailers use to attract more people into their store. Well, that's innovative, isn't it, from the Minister of Innovation? He wants to attract more arms dealers, more cyber warfare experts into Victoria. He also said the Victorian government wants Melbourne to become a world leader in this area. Well, innovation, innovation, jobs and growth, jobs and growth. You're with Jacob on Community Radio 3CR with a Friday rave. It's 5.30, so I'm going to get out of here and leave you with the so-so, and I will see you all at the State Library tomorrow at midday. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.